All right. Now we're streaming. So there we go. Okay. Uh, Twitch should be up and running now. I hope that that uh, is all good now. And we should be all set. Phew. Okay. All right. Welcome, everybody, back to Exploring the Lord of the Rings. It is session number 95 of Exploring the Lord of the Rings, and I've gotten things messed up here. Okay. Oh, well. No idea. Sorry. Trying to adjust things because things are still messed up. I'm now getting comments, but they're turned sideways, so I'm now not only looking at comments in four different places, but I'm like having to read half of them at a 90-degree angle. So it's all good. All good. Um, <laughs> welcome back in any case. Um, so tonight we are going to continue book two. And uh, last week, you know, uh, folks were teasing me for only getting through one slide last week, uh, you know, as we were, uh, uh, and, and, and there was some speculation whether we were going to slow down even further in book two. We just were catching up. Remember, I, for, I, I, I prioritized finishing book one on the week before, so I had stored up a couple extra questions that I wanted to talk about. This time, uh, I only have the one thing that I wanted to... There were a bunch of really interesting discussions on the... Uh, uh, on the discussion board, there's only one uh, that I really wanted to talk talk about in class here today, which I thought was really cool. And uh, and then we'll move on to the text. But first, a few quick announcements. Uh, we had a whole bunch of things going on um, last time. And oh, let's see. Oh, the, uh, the the Twitter stream isn't working, dear. Yeah, figures. I have no idea what's wrong with this thing. Twitter, the like Periscope on Twitter completely changed their interface. It looks kind of messed up to me, but uh, I don't know. It says it's broadcasting, so we'll see. But anyhow, whatever. I'll try to sort it. Um, another time. I can't work on it. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna waste more time fiddling with it now. But let it. Let me. Uh, Remind you of stuff that's going on because we had a bunch of things going on, including some new announcements. So first, some review stuff from Signum. So first, just to remind you, we're having an any uh, anytime audit special on our science fiction part one class. You can get reduced tuition uh, for auditing our uh, the first half of our uh, historical science fiction survey through the end of this week. That expires on Friday this week. Um, hey. Irendis, great meeting you in New York this weekend. Always and Fourth Dauntless was there too. Got to meet both Fourth Dauntless and Irendis this past weekend. Uh, that was really fun. Um, uh, also, upcoming events. We have three things that you've heard about before. One of which is coming up very soon. This very weekend is Sunshine Moot this Saturday uh, down in Orlando. I'm getting ready. My uh, uh, my. Uh, my youngest son is going to be accompanying me. I'm going to have uh, so I'm going to have my assistant, uh, my junior assistant, with me here this weekend, uh, and uh, it's going to be a lot of fun. So we're looking forward to getting down there to Florida this coming weekend for Sunshine Moot on the 23rd in Lakeland, Florida. Uh, this you can still register uh, if you uh, uh, if you if you think you can make it uh, to Orlando. That'll be great. It's going to be a really really good time. Uh, and then of course Nader Moot is happening next month in. In Leiden in the Netherlands, uh, uh, which is also going to be a really uh, awesome program. I was just looking at the schedule for that today. That's going to be uh, great fun. We were talking about translation uh, there. Great day. 
April 13th, Saturday, April 13th in Leiden in the Netherlands. And of course, Mythmoot, June 27th through the 30th this year, the big event, uh, which is going to be cool. Uh, now, the, the new thing that I wanted to announce, and this is brand new, is the State of the University Address. So on Monday, this coming Monday, March 25th, I'm going to do a special broadcast where I'm going to give you some updates about what's been going on. There's been a lot happening with Signum behind the scenes. What's going on? What are the next steps? And uh, uh, what are some of the, the big plans and stuff that we have coming up? Just to kind of tell you, keep everybody posted on the State of things during these exciting times at Signum University. So uh, please do join me uh, Monday. This is it's going to be at the same time as class. Well, like the same time classes, you know, like meant to be and stuff tonight. So Monday, uh, March 25th at 9.30 p.m. Uh, there's a registration link there. If you want to join me, I'll also broadcast it on uh, uh, on Twitch um, uh, 9.30 p.m. on Monday. Uh, uh, so you can join me for that. And yeah, we will exactly as Sharon says. We'll post that uh, on YouTube and everything. Uh, if you if you're not able to make that, but just wanted to make sure you were aware of that. Okay, and that's what's going on here this week. Um, now, let us uh, let us get back to the text here, um, uh, because even our first um, our first uh, topic, our first. Uh, 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 um, uh, comment from the discussion board comes back to the um, comes back to the text. I, I've called this this session "Go Not to the Wizard for Answers" because boy, is it like pulling teeth getting anything out of Gandalf here um, when he shows back up again and just won't tell Frodo anything. Uh, it's just something that I, I never really noticed. You know, this conversation between Frodo and Gandalf. I always primarily remember it for the things that Gandalf does tell Frodo, right? And, you know, all those things that we've been thinking about and, you know, I kept saying, let's wait till we get there in chapter one. Um, and, you know, we're getting there now, but uh, but it takes him a while to warm up to that. He keeps he keeps pushing it off and pushing it off for a really long time. I, I don't, yeah. Lalith says a wizard reveals precisely what he means to. Yeah, and apparently what what he means to is uh, little, apparently. Um, but um, anyway, um, we will um, uh, we'll see. Yeah, and that's interesting. Uh, Tamara says it's a problem across the Lord of the Rings. No one ever wants to answer a question when asked. It, it's fairly common. It's true. Um, <laughs> push along, says Gandalf. <laughs> exactly. Bruinier is, of course, recalling the letter that Gandalf wrote to Frodo, uh, left for Frodo and Bree in one of the early drafts, uh, when Frodo was just coming along behind Gandalf on the road, uh, and uh, Gandalf didn't yet have any idea that something was going on. Um, so, um, so yeah, his, his message to Frodo is to push along and not tarry at Bree uh, and drink too much. Uh, so, yeah, that was uh, uh, early days in the story there. Um, yeah, so, um, yeah, okay, um, let's, uh, let's, let's, let's get back into it here. So first, so the singing fox made this wonderful observation, which I mostly just wanted to share, uh, and, you know, this is another wonderful, um, illustration of that message, you can never spend too long, right? How long did we spend? We spent 
almost a whole class talking about this sentence, and we didn't even talk about this, right? Um, The singing fox says, I was listening to the recording, and this struck me, especially as I was listening at one and a half speed, which brought it out more. There's a bunch of alliteration in the paragraph with the sentence with the many similes. Fear now filled all Frodo's mind. The wind whistled in his ears. A breath of deadly cold pierced him like a spear, as with a last spurt, like a flash of white fire, the elf horse, speeding as if on wings, passed right before the face of the foremost rider. Frodo heard the splash of water. It foamed about his feet. Yes, there's a lot of alliteration there. Uh, this is the first sentence, as far as I can tell, is a perfect alliterative line, but all of them connect words that go together, so I think we can safely assume that this is on purpose. It foamed about his feet, strikes me as onomatopoetic. I agree, uh, foamed uh, does, does sound kind of onomatopoetic there. Um, absolutely agree. No, I don't think this is by accident. Uh, I think that very frequently we can hear Tolkien playing with the sound of words, and we know that alliteration is one of his favorite sounds. I would point out that we can see here, or we can hear here, rather, um, uh, uh, even more, I think, in some ways, even more alliteration than the singing fox is pointing out. Notice how we not only get like the alliterative chunks there, like fear filled Frodo's mind and wind whistled and um, uh, flash of fire and face of the foremost rider. Um, but we also get the sort of the connections between those uh, as well, right? So we get uh, cold, uh, the deadly cold pierced him like a spear with a last spurt. And then we get the flash of white fire, so we get the two Fs, but then we come back to speeding, as if on wings, right? Which, of course, um, will connect back to spear and spur, you know, spear, spurt, and speeding, right? Just as we have flash of fire interlaced with, again, the, the next SP sound, right? And then face of the foremost rider. Um, uh, and then, uh, you know, again, even um, that last line, Frodo heard the splash of the water, it foamed about his feet. All of those sounds are sounds that have been alliterating in those previous sentences, right? The F of from Frodo, the SP of splash, and the W of water from wind whistled even, right? All of those uh, were, you know, so we get this like uh, um, interweaving uh, network of sounds, right? This sort of, these consonantal themes um, that are going through this whole um, uh, this whole this whole section, um, and not only that, but we also get some um, um, some assonance as well. Uh, Tolkien is very fond of rhyme, of course, but uh, even more than he's he doesn't only play with 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 simple rhyme like that is you know with the same last syllable, right? Um, uh, so, for instance, uh, pierced him like a spear, pierced and spear. Uh, are very they don't rhyme right because the 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 final consonant in pierced is different um but you get that same p e r sound right that peer sound um repeated very closely together right pierced like a spear um so uh so yeah i i think that we can hear now i'm not a hundred percent sure having noticed all this stuff, and thank you again to the Singing Fox for drawing our attention back to this, I'm not 100% sure exactly what to do with it, 
Precisely. Um, I agree, Iwan Dillian, uh, Tolkien is writing in poetic prose, and we can certainly see this, right? This sort of attention to the sound of the words and this desire to make, um, it does give the whole thing a much more sort of Anglo-Saxon heroic meter sound to it. It's not exactly following Anglo-Saxon meter or anything, Um, but but it definitely... uh, in moments of high intensity like this, Tolkien is likely to shift into these modes where he's really focused on the sound of the words. Sometimes we have we have talked about this uh, in looking at how his syntax changes, right? How he goes from these sort of long, meandering sentences describing the landscape uh, to the to the swifter and swifter cadence uh, of his. Um, uh, 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 his, you know, paratactic sentences just stringing together simple independent clauses one after another, usually uh, joined not even by, uh, uh, you know, uh, end marks, but by, uh, but by punctuation. Or, uh, sorry, not by punctuation, by conjunctions, right? Like and, and, and. Um, but, um, yeah, Dior, I agree that to some extent the alliteration might have just been natural because of all of the study of... Germanic and Anglo-Saxon alliterative verse that he did. Um, And I'm certainly willing to believe that in some places it was unconscious. Uh, I don't think it's necessary to believe that it was um, that it was uh, completely you know, conscious and intricately planned in advance or something like that. In some ways it may just be a kind of a natural side effect of his increased focus on the 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 sound. I don't think that Tolkien necessarily every single sentence in The Lord of the Rings, right, is thinking about, you know, the shape and the sounds of, of every word and phrase. I don't really think that that's necessarily what he's thinking all the way through. But I do think um, that at these moments when he is describing these climactic moments, I think he's more keenly aware. And when he's more keenly aware, he's certainly more likely to do some of those things uh, that he himself really enjoys uh, and which have uh, 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 which for him have a really strong impact. But again, I think it's a a question of um, um, I, I think it's a question of what is the effect exactly Right, that he is, um, um, uh, that he is trying to have, you know, and um, it's one thing to say it's poetic, which it is, right, and of course it's another thing to say that it's poetic, reminiscent of alliterative verse, which it is. But what does that mean? Like, what is that effect, and how does that effect change from other effect? Why does he choose this particular effect, right? Um, and. One of the things that I observe, again, from this is the way that he sort of ties these things together. Um, think, I mean, again, that sentence, we spent a long time talking about these sentences before. A breath of deadly cold pierced him like a spear. Um, so just, just thinking about the first half of that sentence for a second, right? A breath of deadly cold pierced him like a spear as with a last spurt, like a flash of white fire, the elf horse speeding as if on wings. Pass right before the face of the foremost rider. Okay, no, let's think of the whole sentence, right? Look at how the alliteration... Look at the impact that the alliteration has on the structure of that sentence, right? Um, the... 
and not just the alliteration, the 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 phonoesthetic effects, right? Let's kind of broaden that a little bit here. A breath of deadly cold pierced him like a spear. Um, the assonance there, right? Connecting. So you've got the, the, the simile, right? Like a spear. How did the cold pierce him? It pierced him like a spear. Um, but the, the near rhyme, right? The assonance between pierced and spear links those two things much more closely together, right? It's not just, you know, uh, it's not just a simile, right? It's not, uh, or, or it's not like a detached simile. Uh, those are connected together. And then notice they're also connected with the spurt, right? So the pain that he feels, the deadly cold that pierces him like a spear. Um, you think about the word spear serves as like a kind of bridge, right? Between the cold that's piercing him, the connect connected to that through the sound of the vowels and then connected with the spurt, right? With that initial sound, the spear and the spurt. Um, so you can, there's, there's this sort of, this suggestion of not quite causality, but again, of, of, of interconnection here, right? And you, and the spurt of course then leads to the speeding, but between that you've got the flash of white fire, right? And think of the, those two F alliterations, flash of fire, face of the foremost rider, Right as those two things are sort of opposed to each other, the flash of white fire before the face of the foremost rider, um, and in between them, the speeding, right, which comes from the spurt and through from the spear. Uh, so, I, I, you know, I don't want to belabor it. Anytime you belabor it, it, it starts to sound like, it makes it sound really contrived and everything, but, um, but I love the way that poetic techniques, whether, this, whether it's in prose or in a poem, um, that where that poetic techniques like this can draw our attention, sort of esta- it, it establishes in our ears whether our brains really process it or not. It establishes these kinds of structures and forms and connections uh, among things, and I, that seems to me one of the effect. Again, was that exactly what he was going for? Did he plan that? I'm not sure that he necessarily did, um, but I think it's what happens anyway, whether he planned it or not. Um. Yeah, good. Uh, Lilith is saying uh, it feels like it's definitely trying to depict competing forces between those two groups of uh, alliterations, uh, like light fighting dark. Yeah, yeah, the face of the foremost rider, um, which, of course, remember, Frodo can see, right? Just in the earlier, a, a couple sentences ago there, it was emphasizing how Frodo can see their faces now uh, uh, with his, you know, naked eyes, right? Um, so... So, yeah, you've got the face of the foremost rider and the flash of white fire. I agree. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely how it strikes me there, too. Um, and, JJ, I absolutely agree. Part of the effect as well is the um, just simply the elevation, right? One of the reasons that these moments in Tolkien's uh, uh, writing are so powerful. And, you know, so many people, right? I mean, come on, like, let's admit it, right? We're all Tolkien fans. How many of you, like, get chills or, like, burst into tears or something at, like, many of these, like, really, really uh, uh, tense and, and, and sort of dramatic epic moments in Tolkien's prose, right? Like, come on, let's make the confession here, right? I know I do. Um, so how does he do that, right? How does Tolkien accomplish um, making these epic moments as thrilling and memorable as they are, that is certainly one way, J.J., by, uh, by 
he sort of triggers that, right? Again, whether we process it consciously or not, um, the way that he's able to modulate his narrative uh, and to kind of up the stakes, what we hear in our ears, what we feel in our bones, right, uh, through the sound of this prose, um, changes, right? And so uh, that alone, right, merely the fact, the, 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 the way that our ears and our brains unconsciously register, like, this is different, like, you know, the... The shift is, um, uh, you know, this is not like the other passages. It just makes you pay attention in different ways. Uh, so I, I do think that that's very, that's very important. Um, yeah, cool. Um, <laughs> yeah, several people uh, raising their hands. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, yeah, cool. It is the music of the text kit. That's a, that's absolutely it. Uh, uh, Tolkien is just wonderful at the um, the music of words, right? Um, he can do amazing things with the music of words. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, oh, dear, don't even go there. Don't even go there. Dior is quoting a text trying to make me burst into tears right now, right? Because uh, he's... Quoting the passage that I suspect he knows makes me cry every time I read it in the Lord of the Rings, um, <laughs> but yes, that's exactly that's exactly it. it's of course the catastrophic arrival of Aragorn and the unfurling of the banner at uh, at the Harlong. Um, yeah, good. Okay, um, cool. Um, excellent. Um, oops, sorry. So anyway, so thanks for that, Singing Fox. Thanks for bringing that back to our attention. Because we totally, and we talked about that sentence for like an hour. And I don't even think, I don't even remember talking about it. Um, but, um, all right. <laughs> yes, Priyala, you're right. Not all tears are an evil. I'm not ashamed of them. It's just hard to keep teaching if I'm, you know, blubbering like a child. So, you know, that's, <laughs> that's it. <laughs> that's all. That's my only objection. Um, okay. Let's, oop, let's keep going. Okay, so let us move forward in the text. So we've had the old wizard sitting by the window and smoking, right? Oh, yeah. So, okay, good. Uh, uh, um, two people at once saying it's horns, 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 right? The horns wildly blowing. Yeah, that's a good one. That's a good one, too. Rohan had come at last. Oh, man. Okay. Let's proceed <laughs> on to the next paragraphs of uh, uh, chapter one of book two here. Um, okay. Where's Sam? Frodo asked at length. And are the others all right? Yes, they are all safe and sound, answered Gandalf. Sam was here until I sent him off to get some rest about half an hour ago. What happened at the ford? said Frodo. It all seemed so dim somehow, and it still does. Yes, it would. You were beginning to fade, answered Gandalf. The wound was overcoming you at last. A few more hours, and you would have been beyond our aid. But you have some strength in you, my dear hobbit, as you showed in the barrow. That was touch and go, perhaps the most dangerous moment of all. I wish you could have held out at Weathertop. You seem to know a great deal already, said Frodo. I have not spoken to the others about the barrow. At first it was too horrible. And afterwards, there were other things to think about. 
How do you know about it? Okay. Um... Frodo asks for Sam. First of all, I've always been interested in this choice, right? On the one hand, Tolkien emphasizes Sam's faithfulness in sitting by Frodo's side, right? Um, You know, Sam has tended Frodo night and day since he's been there in Rivendell. Um, But... um, He's not there when Frodo wakes up, right? It's just one, It's a small thing, right? But it's one of those things that I'm like, if I'd been writing that scene, I would totally have had him wake up to have Sam there, right? Um, if Sam has been there the whole time, which again, I have no reason to doubt, right? Sam's been there the whole time. So why is it like in Sam's one brief break right, that Frodo wakes up? Um... Uh, and, uh, it's, I mean, of course, like one of the, one of the consequences is that it means that Frodo gets to have a conversation with Gandalf without Sam in the room. Um, um, but, um, anyway, uh, it's just an interesting choice. Finn says he needed to be only with, you know, only with Gandalf. Maybe, maybe. I'm not sure that I've seen any, um conversation that they've had yet that they couldn't have had with Sam in the room, necessarily. Um, uh, But it does make Sam's coming in even better, Finn. I agree. I agree. Um, Yeah. Mad Violina says that Sam deserved that moment alone. What, the moment when he's not here in the room? (laughs) Right? When he's off on his own? Or you mean, like, the focus on Sam when, uh, uh, when he comes in? I guess, on the one hand, um, uh, it separates the two things, right? Right when he when he runs to Frodo, yeah, no, exactly. That's, that's sorry, I was I was joking with you, Mad Violinist. That's what I assumed you meant. Um, because we get the two things, right? One is Frodo's recognition, like Gandalf's here, right? Whoa, Gandalf, it's you, right? And then Sam, Frodo, you're up, right? So by separating those two things, it enables kind of both of them to be center stage when they happened. Whereas they'd re- they'd both be happening at the same time, right? If Frodo were in the room, so that um, uh, that makes some sense. And Matt, that is interesting. By having him absent, it gives Gandalf an opportunity to talk about him and tell Frodo that he's there. Whereas, yeah, if Sam were there, the diligence of Sam being by Frodo's side wouldn't necessarily have come up in conversation. So that is that is uh, that is a good point. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. No, that makes sense. That makes sense. Um, yeah, but Tony, that's kind of what I was thinking too. That's kind of like when you wait for a phone call all day and you finally walk away to the other room and it comes. Yeah. Yeah, Well, that's kind of what it seems like for poor Sam from poor Sam's point of view. Right. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, good. Um, and are the others all right? Yes, they're all safe and sound. Um, it all seemed so dim somehow, and it still does. Um, I want to kind of tease that out for a second. It all seemed so dim somehow, 
I'm, I'm, I'm trying to, to tease out the distinction that Frodo is making. Like, when he adds, and it still does, right? Um, it's seeming dim would mean, right, he's saying, okay, my memory of what was happening at, um, my memory of what was happening at the, uh, rather, my memories are of things being dim, right? I have a clear memory of dimness at the Ford, right? I could barely see, things were really fuzzy, right? And, you know, and then I kind of blacked out, I don't know what happened, it seemed dim, and it still does. Why does he say, and it still does? Is he thinking that perhaps when he... There was some effect on his awareness which, having been removed, he should be able to look back on that now and remember it more clearly than he experienced it the first time. Um, yeah, see, Rinrus, that's what I'm trying... It seems like that. Rinrus was just suggesting the experience was dim, and so is the memory. I'm trying to understand the difference between those things. Um, yeah, Marianne is saying too that it seems that the memory is dim, but is he having a clear memory of the dimness? And even while he now with his mind clear, his mind and vision clear, thinks back on it, he still can't sort of clear it in his mind, right? Or is his dim memory of his is his memory of his dim experience dim in the sense that now he remembers even less you know he could only perceive a certain percentage of the things right around him and now looking back on it he can only even remember a certain percentage of those things that he did perceive so it's even dimmer now than it was before um uh Yeah, Bricktails is saying he means A, my vision was dim at the time, and B, now even that is fading from memory. Yeah, or at least it's not yet returned to memory. And I'm sorry if I seem to be spending too long on this phrase, but I'm trying to understand what Frodo is expecting. What I'm the larger point, because I, I do have a larger point here, the larger point that I'm trying to get at is what is Frodo's current sense of his, um, of his, I don't know what, awareness, experience, right? Like his mental state and his understanding of his previous mental state. Um, I assume he has access to the memories of how things were when they were all gray and dim, right, as he was fading. Um, how aware is he of how different things are now? Do you see what I mean? Um, uh, 
it still does suggests that he's expecting that it shouldn't, right? Or wouldn't be dim. Um, yeah, Briella, I also am not sure that Frodo even realizes how far gone he was. Um, and yeah, so I'm coming back to last class's passage, right? The very first paragraphs of the, of the passage, um, in which he, um, uh, in which he, uh, is like waking up, right? And thinks at first that he's waking up in Bag End. So the, the initial experience that he has is of waking up after a bad dream, right? Like he wonders if the entire experience that he's had has been a dream. Um, which suggests that he is definitely aware of a kind of clarity now that he hasn't had in a while, right? Um, almost like he doesn't remember since before he left home, right? Even the things have been... Were, things were dim and gray in the very recent memory, but even the older memories are, um, if not dim and gray, are still, uh, you know, like, we're weird, right? Uh, weird and strange, and therefore perhaps in some ways unreal. Um, yeah. Lalith is wondering, does he actually mean that the world now looks dimmer in general after his experience? I don't think so. I, I think, because again, based on his description of, like, you know, oh, you know, am I still in Bag End, right? Am I just waking up from a long, strange dream? Suggests that what he is experiencing now, um, both in his physical perceptions and his in his own kind of mental awareness, are normal, right? What he considers normal. He feels back to normal for the first time in maybe months. Like, since he left home, it's not been normal, right? And the levels of, abnor of abnormality have varied, right, and intensified over the course of that time. Um, but um, anyway, so so that that seems to me to be an indicator of how he feels and how he's looking at things. Um, which is why I'm tending to think that when he says, and it still does, that he's expressing some... Um, yeah. Um, yeah, and you're right. Uh, 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 Lisa Tolkien would know what that kind of experience was like, right? Um, you've got to think Tolkien would have to be remembering his waking up uh, in the hospital after trench fever, right, in France. So, yeah, sure. Um, uh so many comments um, I agree that when you wake up and you feel like something was a dream you know Fourth Dauntless is talking about the dream seeming disjointed um, uh, even if it was perfectly if it seemed perfectly sensible while you were asleep yes um, yes but I'm not sure that that's what he's referring to here. It still does. Again, that seems to me different. Um, it's not like it made sense to me before, but now I'm losing it. Right? Um, yeah. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, I wonder, Matt is saying it's almost as if he's describing having lost something in the Wraith world, that his memory had been partially left there. Um, it all seemed so dim. Now, it is what happened at the Ford. Like, the events at the Ford seemed so dim, and it still does. What happened still seems dim. I can't remember it any better even now. I think this is him for the first time. So again, we have this clarity, this like, I feel like I'm, I'm normal again for the first time in months and months and months. Again, really since I left home. Um, yeah, see, Mad Violinist, I agree. I don't really see this as necessarily losing memories. I think this is him coming to grips with the fact that, okay, it's not just that my memory is fuzzy, right? I don't, like, this is the first time he has reflected back on his experience of fading, like while he was fading, right? Um, and he's sort of looking back on that and realizing, okay, that wasn't re- that wasn't just then, right? Um, it still seems just as dim now, even though my mind is perfectly clear now. Um, I still have no more access to what happened at the Ford than I did at the time, right? Um, there's this distance between, you know, he, he, he... It's not just that he was failing to process things then, which he can now process in retrospect. He's sort of realizing or recognizing or acknowledging or trying to grapple with the extent to which he was completely losing touch with the world around him. Um, yeah. Um, so yeah, I don't think this is something that, uh, either coffee or Miravor is going to fix mad violinist. Yeah. Um, now Briella, I'm certainly willing to agree that his body is affected in some ways. And so his mind, uh, could well be too. I don't think it's impossible, uh, that he would have, uh, lost memories. But again, the problem is not that he knew things that he now forgot. It's that he uh, he doesn't have any more access to it then, now than he did then. Uh, again, I don't think he's forgetting things. You know, again, if we if we say like just to assign arbitrary numbers for the sake of demonstration, right? He had only access to 50% of what was going on around him, but now he has access to even less than that 50%. He only has access to 25% now, because in addition to the fading back then, the memory is now fading, right? That's not what I see, is my point. He's saying, I was only aware of about 50% then. Looking back on it now with a totally lucid mind, yeah, I still can only come up with about 50% of what was going on, right? Um, uh, and I think that that's puzzling him as he's looking back and, and, and recognizing, like, no, I that's really almost a blank for me. Not quite a blank, um, but it's dim, right? It's really fuzzy, and I don't... He doesn't really understand what happened to him. He never really understood. It was never explained to him. They never really talked about it. They talked about, you know, an evil power being in the wound. They talked about... Uh, um, 
the, you know that 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 the wound would submit you know would uh would would uh uh, subdue. That was the word. Subdue him. Uh, Aragorn had mentioned that. But Frodo didn't know any of that, right? He didn't really understand what was happening to him. Um, uh, so, yeah. Um, yeah, Mad Violinist, I totally agree. Um, this state of mind I'm describing gives uh, insight into why he's so desperate to have Gandalf tell him the story to re-anchor himself in the reality of this world as opposed to the Wraith world. That's exactly what I think uh, is happening there. He is, I think, he's a little disturbed, of course, by the fact that he's so, um, he can't make any sense of it, right? Um, I mean, when I think about a kind of a parallel case, right? Imagine a time like when you have a fever or when you're really, um, uh, you know, you're just, you're really sick, right? And feeling totally out of it. Um, or when you're really sleepy or something, right? And you're just kind of like staggering around and I don't know. In retrospect, right? Um, uh, yeah. Yeah, Lisa says people uh, or hobbits often do not experience trauma uh, in a narrative or cognitive way. Yeah, but Lisa, and I don't know, Lisa, maybe you can correct me on this. But um, again, in my experience, when I look back on it, right, when I look back at the time when I was asleep, I can take the cues that I do remember, right, and kind of put that together, right, and I, you know, some things I will not have been aware of, right, or won't have heard or one of it because I've been asleep or something like that. But the thing that, I mean, again, imagine when you have a fever, right, and everything feels really weird and you don't, you're not really parsing things and you don't really understand it. Well, but when the fever passes, you can look back and remember the stimuli that you were receiving and you can make sense of them in retrospect, right? Like, okay, yeah, I was really out of it. I didn't understand what was going on. I was feeling really loopy. But now when I look back on it, from the point of view of my rational, of my current state of, you know, rational, uh, 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 you know, and uh, non-feverish, you know, in my non-febrile state, I can now look back and make sense of it. Frodo seems disturbed by the fact that he can't. He's like, uh, he, he, it's still just as dim now. When he looks back on it, it's, uh, he doesn't, he doesn't really have it. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Right. Um, yeah. Irinda says you can make sense of those things, but it takes time to process. The more out of it you were, the more time you need. Yes. And the more help that you might need, right, from others to give you some more data. Um, yeah. And right. So Lisa says not necessarily in a traumatic experience. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That uh, it's uh, common to not be able to put it together. Uh, and it's very disturbing. Absolutely. Yeah. No, that, that makes all kinds of sense. And when we add the, the traumatic experience with, again, the fact that he was already in this kind of altered state as well, right? Um, yeah, yeah. No, that that um, that that makes sense. Um, uh, Tony is a little bothered by the fact that uh, Aragorn, Merry, Pippin, and Gorfindel are all reduced to the others. Where's Sam, and are the others all right? Um, I don't know that I, that that's sort of minimizing. I mean, he's he's uh, first of all. Can we 
point out the fact, notice me skimming right over the fact that he points out Sam. So saying like, are the others all right? Seems to me a totally fine, acceptable way to say it. I don't think that he's slighting the others. What's interesting is that he singles out Sam right away. Um, Frodo wakes up and when he wakes up, he expects to see Sam there by his bedside and Sam's not by his bedside. And he's like, where's Sam? Why isn't Sam here? Shouldn't Sam be here? Um, I think it's interesting to see how Frodo already clearly uh, depends upon, you know, sort of presumes upon uh, the care of Sam, right? Um, like he knows Sam well enough to know that Sam would be here, right? Um, uh, and I, Brielle, I agree that Sam, uh, Frodo has a duty towards Sam uh, as a servant and close friend. I agree. I'm not, and, and I'm certainly not trying to suggest that Frodo's like, hey, where's my servant? Why is he slacking? Like, I'm not, I'm not at all suggesting that. Again, I just think that he knows Sam well enough to know he's, he was expecting to see Sam. Right. Um, uh, yeah, exactly, Mad Violinist. It's showing the growth of his understanding of how devoted to him Sam is. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, exactly, JJ. I am not saying where's Sam and why shouldn't I fire him for failing in his duties. Exactly, exactly. Um, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, uh, but again, I just, I, I just, I think I've always passed that over. Um, that is, I've always just, uh, the, the where's Sam comment, right? That Frodo singles out Sam among all, you know, he doesn't, it's not the other ones he asked for. Again, I don't think this means like, because he cares about Sam more. Um, he doesn't expect to see Gorfindel by his bedside. He doesn't expect to see Aragorn by his bedside when he wakes up, but he does expect to see Sam. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. Gandalf's knowledge, right? So Gandalf tells him, you were beginning to fade. The wound was overcoming you at last. Um, a few more hours and you would have been beyond our aid, but you have some strength in you, my dear hobbit. So Gandalf begins by telling him, explaining to him this whole dimness, Right? explaining to him what happened. Now, again, keep in mind, Frodo didn't know this before. We've been talking about it, right? We've been talking about how he's becoming a wraith. He's coming under the dominion of the will of the Witch King. He is entering into the wraith world. Frodo didn't know that necessarily or have any real reason to know that. Um, And by saying you were beginning to fade... Gandalf is explicitly referring back to the conversation they had back in chapter two. You'll remember he used that. And, but when he used that word fade, right, he was using it explicitly in discussing the, the effect that the ring has on people. Right. Uh, remember uh, he, when he says that Gollum hasn't begun to fade. Right. But when he talks about the consequences of keeping one of the great rings and wearing it, uh, is that you begin to, you know, if you, if you, if you wear it a lot, you begin to fade. Right. Um, so he is telling Frodo that what happened to you, um, one of the sort of, um, um, sub, uh, subtexts, I think of that comment is like, that was a sort of preview, right? I told you before about how 
the ring makes people fade, right? That's, that's what it's like, right? Um, that was what was happening to you. Uh, it was the wound, right? It wasn't the ring. It was the wound. The wound was overcoming you at last. Um, and he emphasizes how close to the edge he was. He'd been bearing that wound for days and days and days and then, but just, and just a few hours more. And it, it would have, he would have been across the line and he would have crossed that other boundary, right? That race to the boundaries that we talked about. That's how close he was to that other, uh, boundary. Um, I don't think it's Gandalf's way of saying, I told you so, Lilith. Um, no, I think it's just, uh, Gandalf's way of adding an additional warning, um, an implicit kind of lesson from this, right? Um, this, yeah, like, remember what I told you about the effect that the ring has on people, right? Now you know firsthand the kind of thing that will happen. Um, there's something of a sort of cautionary tale, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. Um, but you have some strength in you, my dear hobbit. Uh, the note of affection from Gandalf, coupled with the words of praise, right? Um, his emphasis is not, boy, were you lucky, right? Rather, uh, I remember how Gandalf's initial emphasis was, after all the absurd things that you are lucky to be here too, after all the absurd things that you have done, right? But he immediately softens that um, by saying, not only my dear hobbit, but by saying, you have some strength in you, right? Um, if it were not for you, if it were not for Elrond, you would be dead. But if it were not for you, if it were not for your strength, you, I mean, you should have been dead a heck of a long time ago. Right. Um, so, uh, so yeah, um, exactly Matt. And now he knows, now Frodo knows why not to joke about becoming a wraith. I was thinking about that scene as well. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so mad violinist, I agree. Hobbitry followed by understated praise. Yes, that uh, seems very sort of par for the course of how Tolkien characters relate to each other. Um, but you have some strength in you, my dear hobbit, as you showed in the barrow. That was touch and go, perhaps the most dangerous moment of all. I wish you could have held out at Weathertop. Remember what Frodo did as soon as um, Gandalf said about the absurd things, right? Um, uh, the, uh, Frodo immediately reviews, right, the things that happened, the disastrous uh, accident, the prancing pony, right, the disastrous shortcut through the old forest, the, uh, and of course then into the barrows, um, uh, that his folly in putting the ring on under Weathertop, all those things go before his mind, right, and Gandalf hits on many of those, and he's coming back as if he knows the way that Frodo was kind of chiding himself in the review of those things, right? Um, and he instead praises him. You have some strength in you, as you showed in the Barrow, right? You did really well in the Barrow. I said you did absurd things before, but uh, you showed strength in the Barrow. 
Though he does add, I wish you could have held out at Weathertop. Um, now, the next obvious question. Why was the Barrow perhaps the most dangerous moment of all? Um, yeah, Matt, that's just what I was going to say. At Weathertop, he had support. In the Barrow, he was on his own. I think that in the Barrow with the, with the Barrow White, Frodo was more vulnerable than he was anywhere else. Um, you think about how, I mean, so all of his friends are already taken. He has, he's just waking up sort of from the spell, the terrible spells of the Barrow Whites. Uh, the Barrow White is weaving his incantation around all of them. Um, Frodo is by himself in the Barrow, caught between the double um, temptation, right? As as Marianne was just pointing out, as JJ was just pointing out, you've got not only the power of the Barrow White, right, which is coming at him from one side, but then you have the power of the ring coming at him from the other side in that temptation to leave his friends and try to escape, right? So um, there are... Uh, there are lots of um, uh, there are lots of ways in which he was being and 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 he was completely alone and apparently without resources there. So in, when you look at it from that um, from that point of view, Frodo's seizing of the sword and hewing at the hand of the Barrow White is perhaps the most brave thing that he did, right? The most remarkable act of heroism. I mean, his defiance of the Witch King, both at Weathertop and at the Ford, um, are pretty good, right? But standing up to the Barrow White the way that he did um, is perhaps even more remarkable. And so you could say this is most dangerous in the sense that they were closer to complete disaster there than anywhere else. Um, It looked bad at the Ford, but Elrond and Gandalf had that covered, right? And not to mention they had Gorfindel and Aragorn and the others coming up behind, right? So he had uh, he had folks. The Dell under Weathertop looked bad, right? But again, he had support. Um, it would they were not that close to disaster. They were not quite as close to disaster as they were. Uh, Old Man Willow, yeah, it was close too. Um, uh, Telsmere. Um, Tells me, could you post that to the discussion boards? I think that would, I'd I'd really like to hear that, but I'm not sure if I can do it right now in this medium here. Um, yeah. Anyway. Um, yeah. Good. Vermont Hobbit says Frodo had uh, also had to remember how to call Tom Bombadil. Um, yeah. Exactly. So the hewing of the hand and the calling out to Tom Bombadil. Um, those were the two things that Frodo, you know. The, the, the two ways in which Frodo showed his strength uh, uh, in the Barrow. Um, yes, yes. Um, yeah, and I agree, Lincoln. It's, it's not even clear that Frodo was in quite as much danger from the Witch King at Weathertop than he was from the Barrow White in the Barrow. Um, uh, their spiritual battle was I, I do I'm not sure it was quite an even match but it, it does seem to be in its way closer does this mean the barrel white is more powerful than the witch king no I'm not uh, I'm not saying that um, but um, 
Uh, but again, under the circumstances and given the state that Frodo was in and the way that Frodo had been taken into his domain and was under his power, um, uh, you know, surrounded by his power. Um, even the, the changing of their clothes sort of suggests like, you know, you are mine now you are in my realm. It's just, it's just a different situation than when Frodo was standing, you know, with his back to the fire and with his friends next to him. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, Yeah. Um, ah, so it tells me you're saying so. We're so several people wanted to talk about touch and go. Um. Yeah. Okay. So Hawthorne and Tellsmere are saying uh, that touch and go originally meant when one horse-driven carriage would pass another and the wheels would touch and then go, avoiding a crash. So it does. They don't. It's. A near wreck, right? But it's not. Uh, uh, but it's not a not a complete wreck. Um, that makes sense. That makes sense. Um, Wendy Schmabjorg asks if Gandalf used the term "touch and go" in the Hobbit. Yes, yes, he does when he is describing. Uh, the work that he did in the with the Great Goblin when he sets off the fireworks. Um, very ticklish business. Touch and go. That's it. Yeah, that's the scene. Um, uh, as he's describing working up the best magic he could in the shadows. Yep. Yep. That's it. Um, right. Right. Um, yeah, good. As Matt was pointing out, um, for Frodo to be in the parallel situation with the Witch King that he was with the Barrow White, he would have had to be in Minas Morgul, right? Um, that is, in his domain, under his power. Uh, and so for him to be able to rebel there, both with his sword and with his voice, as we've said, um, that, um, uh, that that was fairly remarkable. Um yeah, Lincoln says so. So the Barrow White had home field advantage, like the Hobbits did in Buckland. Yeah, sure, sure. I, I, I'm willing to go with that. Um, okay. Um, I wish you could have held out at Weathertop. You seem to know a great deal already," said Frodo. "I've not spoken to the others about the Barrow. At first, it was too horrible, and afterwards, there were other things to think about." How do you know about it? Um, so here's Frodo in this really um, um, in this really unfair situation, right? As he can't remember the basic things that just happened, right? And he's trying to get information from Gandalf about what happened. And Gandalf uh, won't tell him about what just happened. And himself already seems to know even the things that Frodo hasn't told anybody else, right? Um, Interesting, you know, I'm always interested in Frodo not speaking to the others about the Barrow. Um, We never hear him speaking to the others about the Barrow, but I remember, you know, I often have the experience when I get to this of sort of thinking, oh yeah, like, I, I kind of 
I had assumed that Frodo would have told them, right? And it just didn't come up explicitly in the narrative. Um, but, um, uh, but that doesn't seem to be, doesn't seem to be the case, right? Um, at first it was too horrible. And afterwards there were other things to think about. Sure. You know, they've been focusing on other stuff. Fourth Dauntless says it seems like shame. He's embarrassed that he thought about leaving them to die and doesn't want to admit it. Yeah, I would think so. Frodo doesn't seem to talk much about the ring or those moments when the ring comes up. Um, did he ever explain why he was heading towards the door of Tom Bombadil's house? I don't think he does, right? He kind of passes it off as a joke and seems to leave it at that. Um, does he explain what happened at Weathertop? Does he talk about He realizes. He, 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 he uh, rebukes himself for weakness of will, right? Um, the, you know, the morning after. But he doesn't... Um, but that doesn't mean that he is, uh, has told them all that, right? But again, Gandalf, uh, seems to know, right? Um, so yeah, Martin, I'm not sure if he's ashamed of his feelings at the Barrow, or maybe he just doesn't talk about or doesn't want to talk about those moments where the ring came up. Remember with the, um, with the ring and the prancing pony, all he says is it was sheer accident, Right, which is either an exaggeration or a little bit of dishonesty, perhaps with himself. Right, it wasn't sheer accident. We know this because, I mean, again, we've talked about this quite a bit, but uh, at the time. But remember, he first he feels the temptation to put on the ring. He kind of longs to put on the ring and vanish from the silly situation, right? But and decides not to. But he's fiddling with the ring in his pocket. So it's not sheer accident. Uh, it happens because... Yes, it happens accidentally. But that accident happened because he was fiddling with the ring in his pocket. Which, uh, it seems, connected to the fact that he began to... Even the business about how he often fiddles with things in his pockets when he's speaking... Um, uh, seems almost like a bit of rationalization... Right, because he was thinking about the ring before he started as well. Um, yeah, um, yeah. Um, yeah, that's interesting. Matt says it makes for an interesting aspect of the conceit of the novel. A part of the Red Book is Frodo's confessio, uh, the, in the tradition of saints' lives, when he writes about his failings. Um, yeah, we can see Frodo, Matt, confessing these things now, right? Which he did not confess at the time. Um, it also, it is also possible, Lady Schmabulak, that he he doesn't really understand the business itself and is ignoring it because it disturbs him. Um, it, yeah, by giving it voice, maybe he would give it power over him. That makes yeah, yeah, that makes that makes a certain amount of sense. Um, I don't think it's bad. Again, I'm not like criticizing Frodo for not um, uh, for not talking about it more. Um, 
I just I just think it's interesting. It just stri- strikes me as pretty important uh, that he never talked about it. And again, when you kind of think back, it kind of seems to me, just as when we were looking at Gandalf says all the absurd things that you've done, what does he immediately think of? Like almost all the scenes where the ring was involved and where he did something with the ring or was tempted by the ring. Um, so too here, um, uh, as he's... Um, it, it, when we look, we can see he doesn't talk about those, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Tony, I agree that he, he must assume that no one else can actually understand what it's like being under the influence of the ring. I also think he himself probably does not realize it yet, either. Um, uh, I, um, remember that he's meant to have written the narrative afterwards, right? After the destruction of the ring. Um, he, I I don't think that he can understand what it's like being under the influence of the ring either. And I would be willing to bet that some of those things, like take for instance, in the house of Tom Bombadil, right? When he puts on the ring there and is in the process of succumbing to the temptation to walk out the door and leave his friends behind, right? Um, He passes it off as a joke. Is he trying to convince himself that it was a joke, right? Does he get that? Does he see that? Um, Does he fully understand that at this time? Not when he wrote it, but at this time, right? I'm not sure even that he really does. Um, Yeah, Tricking himself and his friends, Lilith, is kind of what I'm thinking there. Um, Frodo, after the destruction of the ring, would see all this much more clearly. It's dim now, but it won't still be dim after the ring is destroyed, right? Yeah, okay, all right, good. Um, uh, Yeah, and James, you're right. At this point in the narrative, he hasn't had it yet. By the way... Um, side point, I wanted to share this with you guys. Uh, last week on Thursday, when I did my stream with Mike Drought and Chris Pearson, um, I don't remember if we talked about this in the stream. Uh, Mike and Chris and I were like sitting there talking for like 20 minutes while Cord was setting up the stream. And then we started and we did our stream. And then as soon as the stream was over, we kept sitting there talking for like another half hour. Uh, so I can't remember which bit of the conversation this was in, whether it was in the stream or not. Um, but the, um, uh, the issue of, um, uh, uh, the narrative, point of view of the uh, and of course I I thought of all you guys and all the discussions we've had about who's writing what uh, in the stories that went along Mike Drought uh, made a wonderful point um, which I don't remember hearing anyone make before but it's one of those things like as soon as he says it I'm like uh, clearly that is obviously the answer Um, he said that his so the the issue of the the shift in style Right, how the style of the narrative, especially in chapters one and three, but but really sort of one through three, um, is is you know, like with the with the with the the thinking fox and and all that other stuff, and and then you get the shift in tone, right? And it's different later on. Mike Drought's theory is is chapters one through three were written by Bilbo. That's the part that Bilbo wrote in Rivendell, right? Based on what they told him. 
But of course, he didn't get any further than that, right? So when Sam says later on in The Return of the King, he'll never write our story now, it's because Bilbo still has not gotten any further than chapter three, maybe partway through chapter three, right? But uh, as is mentioned uh, in the uh, in the introduction, um, Frodo and Sam are very unwilling to change anything that the old Hobbit had written, right? Um, and uh, uh, and so that's why that inconsistency of tone is retained, even though Frodo is going back over it now and adding things and, and continuing, of course, the story all the way through. Uh, Tony, did we talk about that at the time? I couldn't remember, but I think it's I think it's 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 a wonderful theory. Uh, I, I think it, it fits uh, super, super well. Um, uh, so, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, just wanted to, to, to make sure to share that uh, as uh as that I as uh, I had already forgotten that, but I knew that you guys would be interested in that. Okay, hey, I have another idea. Let's uh, talk about another. Let's, let's do two slides this week. You have talked long in your sleep, Frodo," said Gandalf gently, "and it has not been hard for me to read your mind and memory. Do not worry, though I said absurd just now. I did not mean it. I think well of you and of the others." It is no small feat to have come so far, and through such dangers, still bearing the ring. We should never have done it without Strider, said Frodo. But we needed you. I did not know what to do without you. I was delayed, said Gandalf, and that nearly proved our ruin. And yet I am not sure. It may have been better so. I wish you would tell me what happened. All in good time. You are not supposed to talk or worry about anything today by Elrond's orders. "'But talking would stop me thinking and wondering, which are quite as tiring,' said Frodo. "'I am wide awake now, and I remember so many things that want explaining. "'Why were you delayed? You ought to tell me that at least.' "'Okay. Um, "'Gandalf's ability to read Frodo's mind and memory. "'Really interesting.' really important. Um, yeah, for Thoughtless, it is really interesting how Gandalf just kind of casually mentions that, right? Especially for Thoughtless, his, his, you know, that, that it has not been hard for me to read your mind. Not only can I read your mind and memory, but it was super easy, right? Uh, is, uh, really interesting. Um, uh, <laughs> Ambrosius Aureliana says, I remember as a kid when my dad was reading this scene to me, first time for both of us. We were both with Frodo. Just tell us what happened already. Ah, the suspense was glorious. Um, yes, yes. Um, Blancsmond is wondering if this is not the first time that he's read Frodo's mind, right? That uh, uh, it has not been hard for me to read your mind and memory. Like, maybe it was harder on other occasions? Possibly. Um, possibly. Uh, <laughs> Rococo says, that's why his memory is dim. Gandalf took it. <laughs> yeah. Um... Yeah, Tony, you're certainly right that Aloran is associated with dreams uh, uh, and and thoughts. Uh, that is, that's right. That's right. Um, 
He has talked long in his sleep. Is this just a thing that Frodo does? Is that a normal? Is this a normal habit for Frodo? He just talks in his sleep? Is this part of the wound? Part of the recovery? Um, yeah, the restless murmurings of ill people, says the mad violinist. Yeah, so it's just like he's been sort of partially conscious and speaking, I guess. Um, I don't think that Frodo just routinely clatters in his sleep uh, as apparently Sir Lancelot does. Sir Lancelot talks in his sleep all the time. Everybody knows that. Um, And occasionally it's embarrassing, Um, uh, especially when Lady Guinevere is in the next room with a very thin wall in between. But anyway, that's another story. Um, I don't think that that's just the, the, um, uh, the way that it happens with, um, uh, with Frodo, usually. Um, the power of Gandalf to read his mind and memory. I don't know. I don't know. I don't understand... Yeah, nightmares and dreams can produce talking in sleep as well. Yes, that's certainly true. Um, Tony says, doesn't Gandalf do something similar to Pippin after the Palantir? Perhaps. Yes. When he's like, look at me, right? Um, And he seems to come away with a confident confirmation that Pippin is telling the truth, right? He's doing a little, you know telepathic polygraph on Pippin there, partly it seems what's going on Um, for Thoughtless, when Gandalf says do not worry I don't think he means that that Frodo looks worried about the fact that Gandalf has been reading his mind Um, I think when he said, don't worry though I said absurd just now um don't worry about absurdity. Don't worry that I'm upset at you or that I think little of you, right? Um, yeah. It is a bit creepy, Stephanie. I think there's no two ways about it. Um, waking up and being told, even by a close friend of yours, yeah, so I've been reading your mind and memory while you were asleep. That's creepy. That's creepy. Um Gandalf is Gandalf is doing something here which could easily be transgressive, right? Let's just um yeah, now, good. Uh, Toromarthen, thank you for that. Toromarthen says, okay, there, there are two ways that we could see this, right? And Toromarthen is focusing in on the word reading here. Hard for me to read your mind. Um, he could mean that he's telepathically looking into Frodo's mind, but he could also mean that he's reading Frodo's mind by interpreting his babbling, 
right? He's been talking in his sleep. And from the talk in his sleep, Gandalf's been able to read it, right? Both his mind and his memory. Um, uh, that's really interesting. Based on what you've been saying, it has not been hard for me to read your mind. Yeah, for me to do a reading. Exactly, Boomful, exactly like that. It, your babbling has not been was not difficult for me to interpret. Based on what you said, I have a pretty good sense of what was in your mind, right? Um, and memory. Because again, like the given that the things that you said were from things that you remembered, I've been able to kind of put it together. Um, yeah, Hawthorne is thinking about the uh, the the Old English use of read, right? Where read comes from, um, which of course, um, well, yeah, I mean it means counsel, judge, or advise. It's about talking, reading. The word read, the verb read, is more about talking than it is about. Certainly about doing something just with your eyes, right, uh, of a printed text. Um, yes, Briala uh, uh, wants to paraphrase it, saying it was easy to gain an understanding of what went on. Yes. Especially when you combine it with his general knowledge, right? So the snippets that he would have heard from Frodo about the... Um, about the Barrow White, the Barrow and the Barrow White, right? So combining what he hears from Frodo and what he knows of the Barrow Whites and what he's learned from their companions, right? From talking to Sam and Pippin and Mary, um, knowing what's going on. Um, he's been able to put together what happened. Um, yeah. I like option A too, Zephan. The more I think about this, the more I like that. Um, Gandalf has the knowledge and background to understand any veiled ring influence, right? He probably does understand. He might understand some of what happened to Frodo better than Frodo does, right? So just from snatches, um, I mean, if you kind of imagine a few, um, uh, if you if you sort of imagine a few snatches of things that Frodo might have said, right? Imagine him you know, he's dreaming, right? In his dreams, he is back in the barrow, right? So he's talking about, like, he's talking about the creepy light, right? He's talking about the hand. You know, maybe he remembers the hand uh, uh, um, uh, uh, twitching like a spider, right? Maybe he uh, is, uh, you know, the, the, the image of Merry and Pippin and Sam laid out with the sword. Um, you know, and Gandalf can put all these things together and figure out what happened, right? Um, Mary and Pippin and Sam would be very clear about the fact that Tom Bombadil came and rescued them, right? Um, so maybe Frodo, um, uh, maybe Frodo is, was also remembering his temptation by the ring, right? Maybe he was saying in his sleep something like, um, I could put it on and be safe, right? I could get away, it's very possible that he revealed things that he wouldn't have said, um, that he didn't say uh, to his friends, and Gandalf was able to put it together. Um, yeah, that's interesting. That's interesting. I um, I really like 
that reading. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, yeah, I like that reading. That makes a little bit more sense to me than the idea that Gandalf is reading his mind in that, in the sense of telepathy, right? Um, yeah. Read as interpret rather than read as, um, you know, use legilimancy upon, right? Uh, to use the Harry Potter term, I saw you guys, a bunch of you talking about pensives and occlumency and things like that in the comments before. Um, yeah, that, that, that makes more sense to me. Um, now, Mudmore asks about Galadriel. Yes, Galadriel does do this kind of thing. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and I agree, Fourth Dauntless. I don't think that uh, Palantir scene requires telepathy either. Um, good. Ardent Crown is reminding us that Gandalf couldn't read Gollum's mind, right? You'd think that that would have been when he was trying to drag the story out of Gollum. That would have, would have been a great time for some legilimancy if he could have done it, right? Um, if, he had the, if he has the power to intrusively read minds, that would have been uh, an opportune moment for it, right? Um, yeah, yeah. And Tony, I was thinking of a similar thing. He says mind reading seems to be a more sort of a sci-fi concept that Tolkien might avoid. Not only that, but the phrase, right? The word reading, read your mind. Um, thinking about mind reading, just would Tolkien use that phrase in the normal way, right? In the normal sense. Um that is the the sense in which people when they when they are referring to the use of telepathy like intrusive telepathy um uh or telepathy isn't exactly the right word in that instance is it but um i don't think that term would have postdated the lord of the rings somebody look that up mind reading when is mind reading used when do we have instances of mind reading i'm pretty sure um, that would have, they would have talked about mind reading. I'm trying to remember an example myself. I can't come up with one off the top of my head. Um, but, um, but I'm pretty sure that mind reading was a thing. Like I am going to telepathically see, you know, perceive what is in your head against your will. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, exactly. Because Ambrosius Aurelianus, that's just what I'm thinking. The early 20th century was like a high time for uh, spiritualists and all kinds of um, uh, all kinds of uh, uh, that kind of you know occult and um, psychic practices and things. Uh, Ermabwed says first used in 1875. I can definitely believe that. Um. The thought reading. Yes, James, that's in Dracula. Um, thought reading. Van Helsing talks about thought reading. Yes. 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 Thought reading. Yep. Um, uh, yes. Yeah. Yep. It's in Dracula, 1897. Uh, so there you are. Um, but anyway, my point is... I can see Tolkien using that word here, but 
probably not simply appealing to it in that uh, um, in that sort of standard sense, right? Um, now, I agree. I'm not saying that, that Galadriel clearly is going to use some mental projection, like intrusive mental projection into their minds, right? So that kind of thing does happen. I, um, uh, it is also clear as, uh, uh, Matt and a couple others were pointing out. Yes. In many partings, um, Elrond, Goadriel and Gandalf are going to communicate telepathically mind to mind. Um, so I'm not saying that that kind of, uh, you know, sort of psychic projection is totally impossible uh, in the world of the Lord of the Rings. Um, I wasn't thinking about it in exactly this way, but for Thoughtless, I think, was it you who was talking about Gollum? Um, no, who was talking about Gollum? I, I, I'm, I'm forgetting already. Um, uh, but, um, oh, Tony, it was you. Um, yeah, I just, there are, other circumstances in which if Gandalf had that ability, you'd think he would use it, right? It just doesn't seem to fit um, even even chapter one with Bilbo, right? He does, it's yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, I am it's just, it seemed that the first um, uh Toromarthen's first suggestion, the read as interpret rather than read as merely see into. Um, see, yeah, Mad Violinist, when Gandalf perceives the mind of Sauron, that again, I think is different. Again, I don't think that he's... I think that is his way of saying, like, I, I, I can tell you exactly what he's thinking, right? Um, his thought is clear, is, is, is obvious, to Gandalf. That doesn't necessarily mean I'm practicing legilimency on Sauron from a distance. Um, yeah, Fourth Dauntless, that's a great analogy. Fourth Dauntless is just like one chess player perceiving the plan of another. Um, yes. Yes. Um, good. Arden Crayon points out you'd think that uh, it would have been fruitful for Gandalf to use his legilimency on, on, uh, on Sauron as well, right? Um, yes. Yes. Um, Anyway, we will we will look at some of those examples as we come through. Uh, maybe we will want to come back to this scene once we have more data. But again, I'm I am. It doesn't seem to me to fit. Not just with what Gandalf would do, because Irma Bwet, I think it was you who was saying that the idea of thought reading Frodo feels creepy because of how that kind of a power could be misused. Right, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's a bad thing to do or to employ, and I agree with you on that. Um, but to me, it's not just the creepiness that makes it feel out of place. It's just it doesn't seem to fit with what we see Gandalf doing and not doing earlier on. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, okay. All right. That, that was that was good. That was good. I like that theory very much. Um, it is no small feat to have come so far and through such dangers still bearing the ring. Um, 
We should never have done it without Strider, but we needed you. I did not know what to do without you. Uh, somebody a long time ago uh, here in the chat was saying, is this kind of a veiled reproach by Frodo? Yes. Yes, this is a veiled <laughs> reproach and not even very, very firmly veiled. Right. Um, yeah. Where the heck were you? Right. Why? I mean, all Frodo knows is that Gandalf failed. You were supposed to come and you didn't come. And as a result, I was on my own. Right. Uh, let's talk about absurd now. Right. Um, yeah. So. Um, yeah. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Yeah. Mad violinist. We'll get we'll, we will get to the locked doors in Gollum's mind. Right. We'll get there. We'll get there. Um, we'll get there. <laughs> Don't worry. Don't worry. Um, and most of us will probably still be alive by the time we do. Um, so, yes, I, you know, Frodo, um, we needed you, right? We should never have done it without Strider, but we needed you. I was delayed, and that nearly proved our ruin. And yet I'm not sure it may have been better so. You do have to love Gandalf's post-hoc rationalization, mad violinist. Uh, It may have been better so. How? Okay. Looking back at what happened, right? Um, Looking back at what happened, it was better because he was able to draw four of the ring wraiths, and so there were only five instead of nine in the Dell under Weathertop. And had he been with them, they would all have come. But had he been with them, he would have been with them. Right? So, um... Yeah, Brunier is saying, could it be that made Frodo able to withstand the journey? Um, uh, uh, Mad Violin is talking about the ways in which that the, the hobbits have grown, right? Where they might not have grown. Perhaps, perhaps. Um, is that what he's thinking? That like, because of the strength you have gained and, and uh, you know, you guys are all better and fitter for the journey ahead of you because of what you've been through now. So like in retrospect, all's well that ends well, right? And you've gained something from this. Um, yeah. Frodo getting his training for later. Um, Yeah, Blue Wizard is still commenting on... Uh, yeah, <laughs> Mad Violin says, um, um, but they gained... Well, we'll see if you if we think they gained anything or not. <laughs> right? Gandalf is already sure. Yeah, exactly. Well, Dr. Candidate builds character, right? Just like uh, Calvin's dad might have told him. Um, yes, yes. Um, Fourth Dauntless is wondering if Gandalf is thinking about the music here and wondering about Providence, right? Like, is this, is it, is it, that's what happened? So is it better that it was so, right? Uh, perhaps, perhaps. Um, uh, Matthew Hirschenroder is wondering if uh, maybe Gandalf's talking about the information he got about Saruman's treachery. 
better to know that than not to know that, right? Certainly. Um, I don't know. I mean, it could be that he's very cryptically making points about um, making points about that thing that he's not telling Frodo, right? Um, I agree with uh, Blue Wizard there that Gandalf is really underselling his uh, imprisonment, right? I was delayed makes it sound like he got stuck in traffic, uh, you know, rather than like I was betrayed by one of our strongest allies and held prisoner and uh, barely escaped. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, Tony, it is possible. That is, of course, exactly the sentence that I had in my mind there. It's possible that he's just thinking it might have been different, uh, but it couldn't have been better. Um, yeah, I tend to think that he's being a little bit more pointed than that, but but it's possible that he's thinking in that kind of direction, too. Um, I was delayed, and that nearly proved our ruin. Notice how this also deflects responsibility off of him, right? Almost proved our... It doesn't say your, right? I was delayed, and that nearly proved your ruin, right? All of us were almost ruined by this, right? Um... Yeah. No, Zephan, I'm not arguing that it's not better to know that he's a, a traitor now. I mean, better to know now than later, right? No question. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yes, and uh, Tony, Gandalf's use of the passive voice is is clearly important here, right? Um, I was delayed, He's using the passive voice because he is concealing the subject of the action. Who did the delaying? He doesn't want to talk about it. He doesn't want to mention it. Um, yeah. Um, I wish you would tell me what happened. All in good time. You were not supposed to talk or worry about anything today by Elrond's orders. A deeply paradoxical statement as, of course, he's manifestly expressing his worry about not knowing what happened, right? Um, talking would stop me thinking and wondering, which are quite as tiring. Um, I can't help but remember the conversation with Gildor, right? I can't imagine what information would be uh, worse than your hints and warning. That's what I was thinking of in the subtitle of this slide here. Um, uh, he's he's willing to give hints, right? Give a partial answer to questions, Um it's this. This is not the way to keep somebody from wondering. I'm going to be really cryptic, and uh, in order to keep you from uh, uh, from 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 worrying, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> Gilgonthir thinks that Gandalf's bedside manner needs work. True enough. I think that's that's certainly fair. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, good. Timdolf is pointing out that had Gandalf been there, presumably he would not have taken them through the old forest and the Barrow Downs, which means they wouldn't have met Tom Bombadil or gotten the swords out of the Barrow, with which, of course, Mary is going to uh, uh, help kill the Witch King. So uh, there are certainly we do certainly will see ways in which uh, uh, you know Providence is going to make use of the events that happen. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, 
I remember so many things that want explaining. Why were you delayed? You ought to tell me that at least. Um, first the reproach, then the guilt trip, right? You owe me an explanation because you left me high. You failed to keep your promise. You promised you would come and you didn't come. You owe me an, exp- an explanation. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> Evil Dr. Cannon says Gandalf sounds like his mom. Um, yeah. Um, you are not supposed to talk or worry about anything today by Elrond's orders. Um, yeah. You ought to tell me that at least. Well, he's not going to tell him that. At least not right now. Um, at least not fully. Why is he waiting until the next day? Why does he want to wait until the council? Um, yeah, interesting. Arden Cran is thinking that Frodo sounds more assertive with Gandalf now than before. No, I'm not really sure. I'm not sure that I see a clear difference in... But, I mean, the main difference is that Gandalf owes him an explanation. Right? I mean, it's... um, Yeah, yeah. Um... Yeah. JJ saying you should, he's basically saying Frodo stop asking so many questions you'll spoil my big reveal. Yeah. Yeah, Lady Schmebulak says that Gandalf enjoys dramatic reveals. Yeah. Save it for the save it for the, it's like when um Trish and Dave and I get chatting before a film film and then we're like save it for the podcast, save it for the podcast. It's exactly what Gandalf is uh, trying to do here. Um yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, we should stop there uh, for tonight. Um, Two two slides is all I got in me. Uh, I don't think we could possibly do a third one here tonight. Um, His surprise is one of Gandalf's cheap weapons. Exactly. All right. So we're going to stop the uh, uh, stop our our text discussion there. We're going to we're still going to go on a field trip here tonight on the Crick Hollow server. but uh, so feel free to join me, those of you who are watching on Twitter, because there clearly are a couple people watching on Twitter. So it seems to be working for some, but not for others. Thanks, Twitter, for messing up your live broadcast mechanism. Um, anyway, so uh, we will uh, we're gonna we'll switch over to Twitch.tv/signumu, uh, and you are welcome to join us there. Thanks very much. Okay, there we go. Good evening, everyone. Good to be back. Missed you all. Okay. Yes. I hope you're feeling better. Uh, yeah. Are, are are things still dim now after your uh, experience of last Let's week? See. Or no? Oh, wait. Oh, I lost your uh, audio there, Valori. No, no, she's gone. At least her audio's gone. Huh. Oh, well. Um, well, you can be stuck with me. Oh, and there you are. Hi there. How are you, Druid's Fire? Okay. All right. Um, so we're going to go back to Rivendell. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna do more, and uh, now that I'm no longer on Honor, I can um, um, I can stable master to Rivendell. 
So last time we were looking at Bilbo's room and we were, uh, uh, you know, starting our indoor tour of the last homely house. Um, so let's, um, let's head back. Let's keep looking around the last homely house and then we'll see if we can go back out to the grounds, maybe meet, meet Gorfindel. So let us head over. Valoria, are you back yet? Did your audio come back? Hmm. No, not yet. All right. There we go. Sorry. Lagging for a second there. Okay. I see a couple of you confessing to lagging a little behind on your Maori reading. It's okay. We're actually uh, uh, pulling an extra week um, this week. Um, I had was going to try to get through the rest of the quest for the Holy Grail in two weeks, but we're going to need a third week. This week, uh, uh, we're going to still spend on the same stuff. So um, we won't be starting the Book of Lancelot and Guinevere. Um, which is the beginning of the big home stretch of Maori until next week. So, so yes, you will only have to go through the end of the quest for the Holy Grail this week. Hey there, sorry. <laughs> hey, you're back. There it is. Welcome back. Thank you. Sorry, I have this thing in my house now where every time around eleven o'clock the Wi-Fi cycles. Ah uh -huh. yeah, I, that yeah, has been happening annoyingly to me as well at times. Yeah. Fun step. So sorry, what I missed. <laughs> oh, nothing. We're just setting out for uh, setting out for Rivendell. Awesome, awesome. Please so, shut out on hotel Wi-Fi like I am. Oh, right. jeepers! I might as well be. I'm out in the boondocks. So. <laughs> I'm in Massachusetts. Massachusetts is a boondocks. This part of it is, yes. Uh, <laughs> I, I was visiting our community manager, Cordoba, to stick pins in him because right. his kilt is now finished. <laughs> That's great. Gotcha. That's great. But you can't really be in the boondocks of Massachusetts. I went. To, I, I, I lived for years in the boondocks of Massachusetts out in the Berkshires. That is, that is nowhere within a commuting drive of, uh, uh, you know, the Boston area is really boondocks. <laughs> so we're talking about yeah. sorry oh nothing I was just thinking so we're talking about Gandalf maybe or maybe not reading minds right yes and immediately I thought of all the times my kids accuse me of having superpowers like right. that or something right. like, oh my gosh, you can read your mind. And it's stuff like, oh, you know, they're, they're, I'm saying, do you brush your teeth? And they say, yeah, we totally brush our teeth. And I said, you're lying. And they're like, oh, witchcraft. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. How could you possibly know we hadn't brushed our teeth? Because your yep. breath smells like cat food, guys. <laughs> <laughs> right. But they, yeah. But to them, to them, it's some sort of dark sorcery. <laughs> Right, right, exactly. Could not the truth, could not the same have been said of Gandalf, you know? Yeah, I just, yeah, ways in which you can, you can 
read, which is just an interpretation of, you know, facts, right? An interpretation mm-hmm. of, of what's going on. Um, uh, so, yeah, yeah. No, I really like that reading. I, I was, I, and I think more than anything else, again, it was that phrase. Like, I was just, I was uncomfortable with the idea that Gandalf... W- if Tolkien would simply have Gandalf use the phrase mind reading, uh, you know, uh-huh. like uh, read your mind and mean it in the early 20th century, you know, psychic sense, you know. Dungeons and Dragons, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I just, that never really, I always had a hard time buying that. But if that isn't, but it seemed like that's what he... I mean, it always seemed to me like that's what he meant. But that's just... I think the reading is interpreting is so much... A so much better explanation of it. Um, well, then with the sleep talking, you know, that that was the key factor. Yes, exactly. Because he does admit that through the sleep talking, he had a lot of data to interpret, you know? Uh-huh. Hey, one thing I wanted to point out... One of the things just that I really admire about this, um, that I think that um, Lotro does better than the Peter Jackson movie. Um, <laughs> no comment. I was in New York this past weekend, uh, and I finally got to see the Tolkien exhibit um, uh, yeah. that's there at the Morgan Library. And um, one of the things, uh, one of the many awesome things about that Tolkien exhibit um, is the ability to see his original artwork up close, right? So you, they've got all of the all of the paintings that he did, the famous paintings of, um, you know, the eagle and Bilbo the, up there in the Eyrie, the famous painting of uh, Bilbo riding the barrels right down to the huts of the raft elves. Uh, of course, cool. of, of the conversation with Smaug, you know, Smaug on the treasure heap, uh, you know, possibly the most famous of Tolkien's paintings from The Hobbit, um, the black and white one with the trolls hiding behind the trees, right? Um, yeah. All of those were there, and all of those were in frames so that you could get up really close to them uh, and study them. And just one of the things that's just incredible Tolkien's, um, uh, the vividness of not only the colors, but of Tolkien's details in his paintings is just exquisite. But another one of the paintings that they had that you could look at really closely was his Rivendell painting. Oh. And. Looking at his Rivendell painting, The Last Homely House, uh, the Lotro folks have done a great job of modeling the last home, their last homely house here in the game after the last homely house as it appears in Tolkien's painting, um, especially with like the red roof and sort of the shape of the house and the way that Upside it's nestled in the valley. <laughs> yeah, the, the way that it's nestled in the valley, especially when you look at it up from the hill. That, that, that direction we were looking at it from was close when we were up on the slope, right, coming down, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, is close to the angle. Uh, not quite. The angle is sort of up in the air. You couldn't really stand in the place where the painting is, is sort of taking it from. Um, um, but it was fairly close to the angle that we get in that painting uh, of Tolkien's. And the house is in a very similar position. Uh, and especially when it's sort of, when you see it from a distance kind of nestled in the trees, it looks a lot like uh, uh, Tolkien's painting. So I thought that I was, I was just really impressed 
just by that. It's uh, very just as and this is not the only time, of course, this has happened. I've talked about this way back. I remember talking about this in my Griffith stream in like the first three weeks of doing my Griffith stream um, yeah. when we were standing up on the uh, uh, the when you go across the water through Hobbiton and then up the hill towards Tuckborough, right? And then you look yes. back down towards the hill and Bag End and everything and, 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 and the yeah. mirror and the water. And you can and see water, yeah. how it's modeled on that famous painting, which was also there in the exhibit, by the way. Um, I can't wait. <laughs> uh, oh, man, it's so good. Um, I, I get to go for my birthday. Oh, great. Woo! Great. Yeah, I'm no, so it's p- p- planned plenty of time so i I went to this symposium with you know there were a bunch of really interesting talks that were given and then um uh they were uh, so that the the symposium was at two right so i i i got to the exhibit a little bit before and i kind of ran through a a bunch of it for like 20 minutes just to kind of see a little bit before i had to go to the but then i had to leave and go to the symposium and so i'm sitting there in the symposium from two until 4 30 listening to talks (laughs) Which were interesting and everything. But I'm like, I want to get back to the exhibit. Because the curator had said at the beginning, the last entry into the exhibit was at 5 p.m. And it closes at 6. So I'm looking at my watch and I'm like, I've got to get up to that exhibit. So it, got, it comes back to, it's like 4.35 and they're going to do Q&A. And I just, I just ditched. <laughs> I'm like, forget it. Oh. I'm going upstairs. <laughs> so I sneaked out. Naughty. Uh, and I went upstairs. And the bongo drums in the like, cloud of dust. The whole... <laughs> You know, I spent the whole, like, I, I don't know, about an hour and 20 minutes uh, in the exhibit. And I still, like, was, there was still stuff that I skipped over that I didn't get as much time to look at as I would have wanted to. Um, oh. But anyway, it was, I really loved the, the anyway, but what I had been saying was the Hobbiton painting. Uh, the the painting that Tolkien did, which is again another very famous illustration from The Hobbit, used as the cover of the Fellowship of the Ring. You know, one of the old uh, Ballantine editions, the blue one, um, the light blue one, I should say. Um, anyhow, uh, the, the, it's 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 very clear how the Lotro artistic folks were really modeling that view on that view from the painting. And it is equally clear that they're modeling the exterior, um, not the entire exterior, not the details of the exterior up close. Cause again, you only really see like a roof and a little bit of a suggest of a sort of a suggestion of the rest of the house. Um, uh, in, uh, uh, in, in, in the painting, in Tolkien's painting. But again, it's, it's, it was very clear that they were evoking that. I really love that attention to detail. But anyway, let's go back inside. Let's go back inside and we will explore around some other rooms. Let's go to Elrond's room. Yeah. Now I just found this was an interesting plan here, the open ceiling and stuff like that. And... I don't know, just the, the the logic in me is just, it's, it's the, the one thing that this place is missing is uh, drains. Drains? For rainwater. Yeah. Because how many times you come in here, it's pouring down rain, and you're sitting there going, you know, but <laughs> right. there's nothing to siphon that water away. There's like, there'd be five, six inches of standing water. Right. And mosquitoes. I love, by the way, how... Um the two statues of Luthien dancing uh-huh. sort of frame. I mean, we're still on the second floor, the first floor, I suppose, by European nomenclature. We're right behind the Elbereth 
mm-hmm. um, what image, whatever it is, not exactly a statue, um, like massive icon, right? This is the back of it that we're looking at right here, um, which means that like from the front, if we imagine it, um, it is, uh, you know, we've got we've got Elbereth in the middle, and then like Luthien kind of framing her on either side, which is a really interesting connection, I think, especially given how they've depicted Elbereth with the hair, right? Yeah. You know, the very, yeah. very prominent hair, which always makes me think of Luthien and her cloak of hair, right? Her her invisibility yeah, her sh- cloak of hair. Like a hair. shadow following. Exactly. Um, but, uh, so, anyway, yeah, that always makes me think of that. Um, so here we are. And... Sorry, just looking at designs of things. Is there all... Are you in Elrond's room or Elrond's study? Uh, sorry, I missed Elrond's study. I was going into Elrond's study and then I got distracted by the walls. But I think they're just designs. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Sorry. Uh, beautiful sort of Art Nouveau looking. Uh, these organic leaf and vine and flower designs. Yeah, that's the one. Um, yeah, uh, Hawthorne just posted the Rivendell painting that I was describing, that I was looking at, um, at the exhibit into um, into Discord there. That's exactly yeah. the one. Now, if you look up, there's the there's quite obviously a Tudor rose up there. <laughs> It does look very Tudor rose. Well, it doesn't have the double layer of the rose, does it? it it's got it the star in the middle with the, with the double bud. Yeah. It does look, well, it's also got f- fleur-de-lis here. Fleur-de-lis. Right? I mean, doesn't that look like the... <sighs> Can't make it out from here. Uh, yes, those are definitely fleur de Yeah. Or given these or else, maybe they're irises or something. Right. Awesome. Hawthorne with the pictures. Yeah, Hawthorne is showing us the, the Tudor rose. Yeah, see, the double layer of the white and red rose were the, uh, was what I was sort of missing there. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, the center is different. It's the outer petals that are really identical to the to the Tudor. Well, exactly, Penloth, that's what makes it a Tudor rose, right? Th- that it's got the red and the white. Because, of course, the yeah. Tudors were trying to be like, hey, we have, the, well, they this literally were totally the marriage of York and They really were and, these and things here. Right? Yeah. 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 They totally used these symbols and we didn't make it up later. Right. Exactly. Um, yeah. So that's, um, however, so. You might say, one might say, York Rose or something. Right. Why would there be? Hey, Hawthorne, while you're finding images, could you find me an image of a York and a Lancaster Rose? Not the Tudor Rose, because I said this is not Tudor. Technically, this is not a. It looks like it. It's very reminiscent of the Tudor Rose, but it's not mm-hmm. the Tudor Rose because it doesn't have the double layer of petals. Um, which, although this is not colored. Right, this is just gray stone. Um, 
so you couldn't tell if it was white and red anyway, but it doesn't have the... It's got those behind it look like leaves. Okay, there's York. Penloth just put the York rose. Good. Okay, so it does still have the double layer, even though they're both white uh, for the York rose. It's it's the same design for both. Same I mean, design remember, for both, it was, just it, the colors. It was retcon, so in theory it yeah. was the same rose. Right. Okay. Yeah. Okay, right. So they're both the same. The fake historian the, didn't want to make two designs. Right on. Right on. Yeah, it sounds like it's like they both they had you know the, they just had the same uh, graphic designer yeah. didn't couldn't yeah be no bothered. I'm a Photoshop artist just add color saturation yeah exactly yeah. right there uh, we go <laughs> and you can sell it to both houses that's very easy um, exactly okay okay so it's reminiscent now maybe um, maybe. <laughs> You might be thinking, well, having a flower like this, which does seem to be the shape of those outside petals is quite characteristic, Um, very much like these uh, York, Lancaster, Tudor roses that we've been looking at here. Um, And then you've got the fleur-de-lis, right? So we have these sort of medieval symbols, you know, straight out of England and France, um, why do we have these in the house of Elrond, right? Why would Elrond have all of this medieval stuff? Um, and my answer is, um, simple. The answer goes the other way around, right? The question is not, why is there, why are there French symbols on the ceiling of Elrond's house? The question is, how did the French come to use a symbol that was also used in Elrond's house. Um, they found the runes, obviously. <laughs> that well, that's the fun thing, right? Is that and and I kind of like the the fact that the Lotro people didn't sort of shy back from using symbols or derivative symbols um, uh, from you know of of like of of known things, right? Um, because one of the things that Tolkien loved doing, right? One of the things that Tolkien loved doing was explaining, like, what is the mythic origin of things, right? Yes. So the way in which it seems like we're being almost to... um, We're almost being invited to imagine that this particular flower symbol, both of these particular flower symbols... Are used their usage in the Middle Ages is a dim memory or a distant echo of the fact that they were used by elves here in the Third Age, at least uh, of Middle Earth, right? Um, uh-huh. And that that seems that works for me. That seems to sort of fit. Uh, seems very like a thing that Tolkien would do, even if he didn't. I like that. And, and with the Arnavo references, I always loved the idea of you know the Lefe Vert granting these visions of elven halls mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. to artists and stuff like that. <laughs> yes, yes, yeah, exactly. Um, okay, all right. Sorry, I, I, we can go actually go into Elrond's library now. <laughs> I don't think I've ever looked at these doors. Yeah, the doors are pretty cool. I, I like the leaf. Uh, clasp on the on the yes. handles there. Yes. 
Does any of the doors remind you of the doors in uh, Felagoth when we took you on the sightseeing tour? Well, I was thinking about that. I mean, the designs aren't the same. The lines are different. Um, but I don't know. I'd have to... I'd have to view it again. I only had some sort of fleeting images of Felagoth. Felagoth we can right? fix that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I should take Wigand up there now that he's, you know, all of almost 100 level. Yeah. Yeah, he'll be able to survive there. He For a couple seconds. It. Oh, he's a guardian. He can make it. Uh, at least he should be I able to send off the deal. Yeah. <laughs> she just rode away from everything. Yeah. So now this, the plant motif uh, on the on the frieze above is really interesting. Yes. It doesn't look like grapes. It looks like hops, maybe. Yes. Yes. Yeah. It, well, so first of all, the elves. It's very busy. I mean, everything yeah. is very busy. So many layers of <laughs> decorative style, one after that. Like the one, you know, the, we've got the frame of the inner arch and then the the one arch and, you know, with like the crosses in circles and then the other arch with circles and then the surrounding piece with more vines and, uh, and, and designs and then more flanking those. Uh, never ask an elven interior designer's opinion, for he will say both yes and no. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because this is, yeah, no, this is, yeah, distinctive of a race of people who live way long and get really, really bored. Exactly. These, yes. Well, they, Ex they can't just sing tralalali all the time. This is, this is, these are decoration decorations made by people with a lot of time on their hands. The introverts, yeah. Certainly, the intro yeah. This is what the introverts do in their spare time when they're. Well, and look at how the look at how the bookcase is dwarfed by the decorations, right? I mean, you've got this one really quite small bookcase surrounded yeah. by layer upon layer of arch, right? Yeah, you do feel like there could have been a lot more books. In <laughs> yes, yes. If say the arches had gone out to I don't know, like. Up to and including the Arch of the Circles, right? That sort of the, looks the like... The fifth uh, arabesque up there? Yeah, exactly. You know, the, the, the circles that look kind of like, you know, the decorations on, uh, on uh, you know, the, the, the Ninth Doctor's TARDIS. Uh, if you, you could have filled that whole thing with bookshelves, right? And then just had yeah. the, the framework around the, around the side, right? This, um, this is the architectural version of the dress wearing you. <laughs> yes. Yes. I mean, the books come to look almost like an accident, right? <laughs> look it, at beautiful walls. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's a beautiful. And there's a little hole in it, and we decided to put books there as well. Well, well that just maybe it goes to show that this place was built when there was still oral tradition, and eventually they had to figure out what they were going to do with the writing system they developed, you know? Right, right, right. Well, if, as you remember from the High Elf intro, Elrond singed gives you a very small stack of books to read for 3,000 years of history. Right. Yeah. It could have only have been like the tale of years. Right. Right. Yeah. It's yep. probably Richard Scarry's What Do People Do All Day kind of thing. I don't know. <laughs> One of my children's favorite books. 
I've read so much Richard Scarry. Oh, yeah. Um, yes. This design is really interesting to me, too. Is this a, like, it's, it's a dagger, right? The fact Something that we between have this... the dagger and the hand of Fatima. <laughs> yeah, we have this very ornate, like, blade shape. <laughs> exactly. Forthala says, is this a dagger I see before me? Um, Elven carrot. Dagger of the mind. <laughs> yes, it's, it's but a dagger of the mind. Um, Paisley oh. dagger of the mind. <laughs> My goodness. So much decoration. Yeah, it's it's like you could tell every 20 years or so the artist would come back and he still wasn't quite happy with it and he decided to futz with it some more. Right, or even every, you know, 200 years. Maybe. Um, oh, man. Okay, all right. Yeah, this is me when I mess with stuff too much. It's like after a while, you just got to take me, take it away from me. Is that an Elbereth in the middle? It is, isn't it? Yeah, where? Oh, and yeah, this one gazebo. is... This one is colored and it has ears. Clearly, those are ears. Yeah. Yeah. She does have ears. Wait, are there more things up here? What are these business? What's the. Oh, this is. Oh, so we're borrowing the motifs from up near the ceiling over there. Yes. Yeah, the, the sort of hops vines. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The hops vines. Exactly. Huh. Hops. It's a very dwarven sort of thing. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, they might not literally be hops. Okay, so Something this icon in the middle. So this is clear. I'm trying to get a clear shot of it. Okay, this is clearly the Elbereth from downstairs, but it's for the four-sided Elbereth facing all ways, right? So everywhere yes. you go, um, Elbereth is watching you. Or over you. Yes. Still Help her over. as a librarian. Yeah. She's blonde. He's watching you bend that page down to keep your place. Yeah. I did not expect her to be blonde. I kind of did, actually. Galadriel's blonde. Well, yeah, but... Hmm. Fortalis, I was thinking too that it's odd for her to be watching instead of listening, but I mean, she could be listening. Could be. Yeah, I actually for um, for Elbereth, I pictured silver hair. Yeah, I pictured black, but oh, she's well, also I, the book return to, bin. <laughs> when it comes to the subject of characters' hair color, I've proven to been wrong. Nine times out of ten, so yeah. don't go with me on Tora that. Tora and I was thinking the same thing. Black like the night sky. Um, especially yeah, no, I'm still mad Feanor didn't have red hair. <laughs> right. Right. Whoa, okay. Well, yeah. it's not the Library of Elrond unless you break an ankle, so... Right. Oop, didn't make it. I am not going to jump to the ring. I am just <laughs> wanting to walk Chicken. demurely down. Yeah. Quack, 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 quack. <laughs> What's the matter, McFly? I'm looking at Elrond's rather Let's simple, see. simple vine leaf on top of this uh, 
What's going on with the back of his shirt? Is that like a reverse ruff that he has, like Uh, under his hair? Yeah. What's this lacy business around around his hair as it hangs down his back? That is. It looks like looks like lace or or a ruff or a hood. Yeah, look at the collar. It's the same as the front of his collar. It goes front and back. Okay. I just realized he's got a pattern on the actual fabric. It's reversible. It's reversible. Oh, his yeah, shirt is reversible. Yeah. But isn't that yeah. a little bit weird? No, nah, not for an intellectual who doesn't care about such things. Okay. Well, I mean, you know, like, reversible the, is I practical. I have intellectuals in my family. You still have to remind them their shirt's on backwards because they just don't care. Right. Right. Yeah. No, that makes sense. And then this way, if he's if he if he can put it on either way, then it doesn't matter. He can't put it on wrong, right? So that's mm-hmm. safer, I guess. Um, yep. Are yeah, those there's little like starbursts on him? Are on they the stars? I thought they stars were maple starburst, leaves. No flowers. Flowers. They look more like starbursts like... to me. Yeah, yeah. starbursts. I guess I can go with that. There's a lot of points there. Well, it would make sense if they were stars. It would make sense, though. It looks like he's got trees. Yeah, exactly. Looks like he's got trees and branches on his sleeves. Not sure the bodice and the sleeves are connected to the same garment. Uh, Do you think he has stitch on sleeves? Oh yeah, like in the song. Yeah. Well, you know. Or it's his undershirt poking through. That's also possible, I suppose. His chemise over his under his satut. <laughs> um, yeah, he doesn't seem to be wearing a ring for Dauntless, but I think it, I think it, you know his ring might be in stealth mode here. It's cloaked from your vision because he didn't tell you about it. That's Don't right. he knows And you're not bearing the one ring, so you can't see it. Yeah, and also don't tell nobody. That's not cool. That's right. Rings are like Fight Club. Yeah, we don't talk about Ring Club. There's another shirt. (laughs) (laughs) So Ponton found an interesting tapestry earlier. In here? Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm looking at it. It's between the the one that we didn't know which mountain and tree it was and the moon. Yeah, the the two dragons, Ah. actually. You can can see a lighter red uh, dragon below it. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It looks like it's doing a nosedive. It sure does. So. Okay. The superimposition of the rising and the falling dragons would seem to suggest that um, this is a banner which is like an icon which is celebrating the destruction of the dragon, right? Yeah, Dragon Slayer. Yeah. So. Which of the two dragons, which of the two possible dragons would it be? Not Smaug, probably. 
Probably not, right? In which case it would be in Caligon, except he was black. Like, you know it's not Glaurung, because he's got wings. Yeah. Which means, so yeah, the Arendel connection, Fourth Thoughtless, is just what I was thinking. It's not black. It's kind of weird to have a white Ancalagon. Um, you know, Ancalagon the White. The little known mm-hmm. Ancalagon the White. But uh, but yeah, the Arendel connection. I mean, so he was destroyed by Arendel. So, you know, that you'd think that would be. In which case, that could be like an Arendel banner. If it's Arendel's house colors, maybe. Maybe he was sticking to his house colors and ignoring the fact that the Black Moon's track. Dragon right, and we black. had been thinking about the ship one as maybe an Arendel banner before. Mm-hmm. But oh yeah, definitely. I think actually you, that one you can purchase in the store, and it's listed as an Arendel banner. Okay. Yeah, that's yeah, that's the one you can purchase in the store. The one with the ship in the moon. The one with the ship in the moon. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. The moon and the stars. Let's see. How many stars? Nine. Again. Again with the nine stars. Seriously. But they are all eight-pointed stars. And they are all eight-pointed stars. Like the eight-pointed stars nine stars surrounding that white tree with the mountains in the background. Uh-huh. Yeah, so I'm still going Feanor in the house of Feanor on the eight-star banner over uh-huh. there. Yeah, that one. That one's the most apparent. Yeah. That's another one that might be taken from, I think, Tolkien's illustrations. Right? Well, close. He did use eight-pointed stars like that in his uh-huh. illustrations. They also, by the way, have his. Uh, um, not all of them, but some of the you know those heraldic, um, you know, not symbols but discs that he drew. Yeah. Um. They. Uh, those are in the exhibit too. Mm-hmm. For thoughtless, okay, so the dragon shape, so you have to imagine the dragon, Penloth and, and For Thoughtless think it's just fire. I don't know. I don't think it's Could just be. fire. I don't think it's just fire. And the reason I don't think it's just fire, I think that behind the head you can see a tail and if it is just fire, it looks like wings pointing down. Well, it could be a decorative fire that's supposed to counterpoint the dragon's body. Yes, sure. But I like the destruction. <laughs> yeah. 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 Yeah, Dior is cool. He labels the he labels the 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 symbols. Um Tolkien labels the symbols on those pages. Um mostly in English using Tengwar. Yeah, and my favorite one is the one I think it was Idril the the one which is the symbol of Idril 
Celebrindal, which Tolkien explains, he like sketches the provenance of it, like how it was like, taken from Gondolin and ended up in Numenor and then ended up getting brought across, you know, that it was, it was yeah. done in Numenor, modeled on something from God, you know, from the memories of Gondolin and then brought over from, anyway, it's pretty cool. Wow. Um, If it's fire, why? Mm-hmm. So here's because dragons. Because dragons, I know, but but why? Mm. I don't know. Here's my problem: the fire that's coming out of the dragon's mouth looks completely different. In fact, it looks yeah, like Yeah, it looks a, like a branch. Looks like a branch. Yes, exactly. Um it looks like Yeah, the style of that fire is completely different from the style of the fire if that is a fire that's behind him. And why would the fire appear to be engulfing him or whatever? It definitely signifies some kind of ruin. Of the yes. dragon, you know. All's laid waste to burn a nation. Right. So why would why would Elrond hang a banner in his library which was merely like celebrating dragon burn a nation, right? That doesn't really mm. make any sense. Yes. Yeah, no, it's definitely commemorating some sort of event in, in you lieu could of a trophy. Right, you could see him celebrating the destruction of especially Ancalagon the Black by his dad. Yeah. But it's hard to imagine him uh, celebrating merely the destructive power of dragons. Um, Boomful suggests that this just means that that's the dragon lore section of the library. <laughs> that's That's a good theory. <laughs> That's a good theory. Wow. Yeah. The other symbols are so uh, are are very clearly delvish. Um, yep. The ships and moons and stars. <laughs> Christy the Fisherdis. Concerning which, by the way, congratulations for catching up with us, Christy. Welcome. Glad you could join us. Uh, right. <laughs> Elrond is saying, I commissioned a pastoral scene. This this, this is not what I was looking for. Um, maybe if it, if he commissioned it, maybe it is Smaug. I mean, he did have a small part to play in the destruction of Smaug. Yeah. I, it could be recent. It could be new. No, I don't know. I don't know. I'll have to ask him someday. <laughs> Who, Elrond? Yeah. Yeah. Um. What What is on the table over here? Looks like a jewelry box. Is it a button? It's the same model as the jewelry box that you get your ring from in the High Elf intro. But I believe it's used in a single quest. 
I forget what's actually in it, but it's some value. It's not Arwen's pin or jewel, is it? Okay, so there's a quest where you open this box, but it's a jewel yeah, box. Yeah, it's, it's a clickable for you. Okay. Okay. It's not revealing its secrets anytime soon. Okay. Yes, it's got filigree. I, sorry? What? It's got it's filigree? Got filig- it does, and it kind of, if you look at it from the top, it kind of looks like the Eye of Sauron, which is kind of strange. It is a little strange. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And yes, yeah, so, uh, uh, Penumbra, it is certainly true that, um, I, you know, I don't know how much, uh, I, I'm, not ins- I'm not attempting to determine the intention of the artists who made the banners. I am instead attempting to explain what we see, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, we're, we're becoming the storytellers. <laughs> exactly. That's it. Right, because this tells a story. Like I am Elrond. I have hung these banners in my library. Right, uh, mm-hmm. I have done this for a reason. And these are obviously like that. These are heraldic, right? Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah, Penlon, they're clearly elvish things mm-hmm. and just as office as the lore master indicates that there's some sort of weight to everything in this study of mm-hmm. his which is you know the the foundation of his knowledge yeah So the elder thing is freestanding. It looks from the top like she's standing on a platform, but she's not. She's just in a gazebo ring, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. It's a long, tall sort of obelisk. Right. Middle. Right. Yeah. Interesting. It's like a really weird merry-go-round. What kind of, oh, what kind of columns are these? Oh, they're Doric. Doric columns. Yes. Doric columns. Indicating they're very old. Yeah, Belongsmond, you know, it, it does seem a little bit weird that Elrond would swiftly commission a, a Smaug tapestry. That's way too current events, you'd have to think, to be hanging in his library. Current? No, I don't know about current. I mean, it was... Only a few what, decades 50? ago. I yeah, know, only a few right? decades ago. Less well, how long does it century. take to make one of these? Well, how I'm long not it saying it's make... not possible to make it. I'm just saying that that just seems like awful current events to be hanging in. I mean, <sighs> Maybe compared... he did it for Bilbo's arrival. Maybe when in Bilbo honor decided of Bilbo? to stay. Okay. Yeah. All right. Because he, you know, you think he'd be in and out of here with his love of... That would His be a pretty big piece of respect to Bilbo. Yeah, so the name of the white... Um, yeah. Penumbar and Nimloth was the white tree, yeah, of Numenor. Yep. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. 
Hmm. I'm thinking first century Elvish. I'm thinking... I'm tempted to go with Ithilien. Right? Yeah, like yeah. Ithilien and Minas Ithil. But I don't think so. First of all, because there's no moon. Second of all, because... Because uh, with the mountains and the tree is what I'm mostly thinking of. I'm thinking yeah. that it's... Uh, I'm thinking that it's first age. And so therefore, I'm still going to go with... Turgen or Fingen? Fingen. Mm. Maybe Fingen. Still can't explain the nine stars. But the mountains mm. in the background is what I'm thinking of. And the way that they're obscuring it, I think I see three peaks there. So I'm going with... I'm going with Thangarodrim being obscured by the white tree, which is the significance of the... Um, again, like the it, it suggests the siege, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Maybe so, the nine stars were put in afterwards is for... Maybe this is a later one with the nine stars added in later is some sort of foreshadowing. Right. Yeah. Not really sure. Significance of the six roots, Amethorn. That's a really great question. Mm. That's a really great question. And it's divided, you know, three on one side and three on the other side. So you could imagine the roots of the of the tree being like the three sons of Finway on the one hand and like the three kindreds of the elves. Mm-hmm. Can work with that. Can work with that. Sure. Because I'm going to think Fingolfin is the moon surrounded by the stars. Yeah. First of all, I'm kind of thinking I'm making a certain amount of free association with Joseph's dreams in the book of Genesis, but <laughs> that's yeah, yeah, good. <laughs> also, Fingolfin coming into the Middle Earth at the rising of the moon would be associated with the moon, so him being so Fingolfin being the moon and then sort of surrounded by uh, the stars. And if you notice, the mountains in the background of this white tree banner are kind of reminiscent yeah. of the clouds, the sort of strange clouds, because you don't normally see... There are no clouds behind the moon, right? That's kind of weird, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but we have them here. And uh, so, it, once again, we have the white figure, the moon here, the tree over there, superimposed over this other thing, right? Mm. Oh. Oh goodness but look what we have what oh my goodness i just solved a thing what tell us look at the patterns okay look at the patterns the patterns in each one of these you have a foreground figure which is white and then you have a background figure obscured Ah. behind the white thing and what do you have Uh, starting from the left you have earth Fire, Fire, air, and air, water. water. And then the stars, stars, right? You've got, like, the ether over there. Oh, man. Uh, exactly, Catriona. White over the thing is the running theme, and we have the four primary 
elements here. We just didn't have the dragon when the dragons attacked. Exactly. Bilbo doesn't have the dragon one in his room. You would probably give him nightmares. Yeah, exactly. Sort of flashbacks, right? Well, he, I don't know. He commissioned those fireworks. That's true. That's true. Um, yeah. Oh, no, that's the pattern. That's clearly the pattern. Yeah. And the thing that yeah. gives it away is the air behind the moon. Because, again, like, there are no, you don't have the moon in front of clouds, clouds like that. That's just, yeah, that's yeah. not, that's, that's, that's silly. But it's not silly when you see the pattern, right? So you've got the tree. Yep. Yep. The tree with the, on the earth one. So, th- so then if you look at the foreground pictures, tree, dragon, moon, ship. And the moon still wins my which of these things is not like the other contest, though, because, you know, if the background show image shows which element we're talking about, which are the fundamental elements we're talking about in the foreground picture, um, if we're thought I was saying the problem is it's, it was just that no shadow uh, on the moon was seen. Uh, so it's uh, it's still uh, it's still endurance uh, endurance. Uh, woke and walked alone. Um, the tree, right, would be also the symbol of Earth growing from the Earth. The dragon. Um, so, like, tree is to Earth, dragon is to fire, ship is to sea. All kind of works to me, but the moon. Why do we have a night sky? Just because the night sky is more elvish? Maybe. You know? Yeah. And because we want white in the foreground. Yeah, you think they could have like an eagle or something for wind. Yeah. Something Manwe related or something. Yeah. Penloth and Amethorn are both thinking, you know, sky instead of... Whoa, someone just frozen in midair there. That was Um, amazing. uh, Do it again. Sky instead of air. Yes, right. I mean, I mean, if you're thinking of, of you know, Vi behind the air, you know, in the higher airs and things. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. No, sky works. Sky works. I'll go with that. Okay. All right. Well, I don't know that we finally f- solved it, and I'm not that's... saying that's the only meaning. I don't think like just because you know this one is the water picture does not necessarily mean that it's not Arendel as well, right? I, or that, yeah, you know, think, the stars, oh, yeah. No, I think these are both. The answer is both. <laughs> yeah, I think the answer is both, too. Um, yeah. But, okay. Oh, all right. Well, the dragon helped to solve it, but I that, that pattern is clear now. Mm-hmm. Whew, all right. Well, I'll sleep better now tonight. <laughs> <laughs> On the subject of which, I should probably let you guys go. Uh, yeah. Uh, sorry. Uh, thank you for joining me for my perhaps not very eventful field trip, but full of close examination of uh, carvings and banners, uh, which is always good fun, and we solve a mystery. So there we go. Um, thanks, everybody, for joining us again this week. I should be back next week uh, for another session. So... Um, We'll be, yeah, because I have uh, Sunshine Moot this weekend down in Florida, but I'll be back on Sunday night. So 
everything should be fine next Tuesday as usual. Thanks, everybody, for joining us tonight. Uh, And uh, thanks, Druid's Fire and uh, Valori, and, of course, uh, 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 Maven, as always, uh, for her help as well earlier on. Um, And we'll say good night, everybody. Thanks. Good night. Good night. Thanks for joining me on this epic exploration of The Lord of the Rings and of Standing Stone's video adaptation of Tolkien's story. If you are having even half the fun I'm having on this journey, I hope you will consider supporting the project by donating at signumuniversity.org fund.